Uh, I have so enjoyed going through Romans together. The Lord is speaking to us, I believe. Paul has challenged our understanding of God, the wideness of his justice, the value of his grace, how faith enables his gift of righteousness to us. One of the most significant challenges that we're considering now is this doctrine of election, that God chooses those to whom he gives mercy. And that is found in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. And, and it's in anticipation of this, we've added a few topical sermons to address deeper questions that this has brought up. So today, we are seeking to understand better what the Bible says about God's election and human will. As I mentioned in the overview of election, this doctrine is both beautiful and difficult. The words in Scripture are plain. When we speak about salvation, we see the greater amount or weight of Scriptures pointing to God's sovereign power and will than even those that speak of human will or our responsibility, yet clearly we make choices. We make choices every day. There are choices. No one makes us or forces us to do this or that. And so with faith, it seems that we are the ones who examine the evidence. We decide to follow Christ or not. And the word does say, repent and believe that you may be saved. Isn't that something that I must do by my will? Well, the big question is, how can we bring harmony between God's will and human will? Do they come together? Well, while allowing... For the mystery of all of this, I believe the word of God brings much light to the issue. And while there is, it must, it must be remembered that while there is amazing beauty in this doctrine, there is also great pain. That God elects his lovingly adopted children, that he brings these chosen ones into, that, that doctrine leads us to a deep peace, an unquestioned assurance, and confident prayer, and even boldness in evangelism. And yet, and yet the fact that many are called, but few are chosen. Means that some that we love, some that are dear to our hearts, will receive judgment and wrath. Even as Paul clearly explains God's purpose in election in Romans 9, 
He also reveals his own heart, the great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his people. And I am sure that to him that included family members. It included colleagues from his synagogue, even his classmates whom he sat with under Gamaliel and his friends. Do you feel pain over this doctrine and the implications of it? Well then, friend, you are not alone. Paul felt pain. And I feel great pain. But no one felt the pain of God's sovereign plan more than Christ our Savior. Not only the physical pain of the cross, but in His heart for those who are on the path to destruction. The main point today is that God is just and merciful to sinful humanity. God is just and merciful to sinful humanity. There are three main points in this, or three subpoints. God's heart in his sovereign will, mankind's heart in our natural will, and Jesus, the centerpiece of God's justice and mercy. And, and throughout this sermon, as you'll see in the bulletin, I have several questions that this topic raises. And so we begin with the heart of God in his sovereign will and question number one. Is God just to elect some? Is God just to choose some and not others? It's one of the main questions that Paul raises in Romans 9. As creator. Paul would say, he gets to set the standard. That's his prerogative, not ours. It's his choice. And he has the right to hold us to that standard. Now, now thankfully, God is not some bully dictator like some of those around us. No, he is good. And he is just in all his ways. When the question of God's justice in election rises, Paul's first answer in Romans 9.20 is, Who are we to talk back to God? Who are we? He is in heaven. We are on earth. And as Ecclesiastes says, we should be careful when we speak. In his holy justice, he would be perfectly in the right to destroy us all, all of mankind. We all deserve it. And he did that once already, if you remember Noah. All mankind wiped out and only eight 
were saved. Consider God's justice. This is an application. Are you living in light of the fact that there will be a day of judgment? Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Every sinful thought, every wicked deed, no matter how large or how small, every wicked deed is an offense against God and His holiness. God will judge on principles of righteousness and only perfect holiness is acceptable. Only perfection. Are you, are you perfectly holy in your own person? On your own? With no help from anyone else? Are you 100% without sin? No. We are all guilty, subject to God's righteous and just judgment. But, question number two. How is God both just and loving? Well, quoting Lamentations 3.33, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says, God doesn't bring the pain of affliction in justice from his heart. He doesn't bring it from his heart. He's not some dispassionate force moving players on a game board detached from the real pain and anguish we feel at his hand, at his judgment. And Ortland continues, he says, he says, God is conflicted within himself when he sends affliction into our lives. It's kind of like a, a parent. A parent that is much more pleased to give a hug than to give discipline, even though both are necessary. I'm sure you parents know what I'm talking about. Wouldn't you much rather give your child uh, an embrace, a hug, than to give them discipline? Of course. But you give both. God says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? The answer is no. God doesn't. He doesn't take delight in death. He doesn't punish people with his whole heart. No. However, however, when he shows mercy, he does that, as Jeremiah 32, 41 says, with all my heart and all my soul. Oh, there's nothing in God at all against showing mercy. He puts himself Holy into it. You see, mercy is natural to God. He loves it. Punishment is 
It's more unnatural. As James 2.13 confirms that mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, even consider the, the, the magnitude, the bigness of mercy over judgment as God reveals his name to Moses. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, listen, listen, listen to God's mercy and judgment here. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Third and fourth versus thousands. You see God's heart? You see God's heart? He's abounding in mercy. And yet he's also just. He will be just. Of course, many would say, if that's God's heart, won't he do what's most pleasing to him? Which leads us to question number three. Isn't it God's will that all people be saved? Well, let's look at 1 Timothy 2.4. One of the verses most brought into this conversation we pick up the context before and after. It might be familiar to you because we actually use this when we talk about praying for our leaders. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all good godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now again, notice the context before. Paul's encouraging prayer. Prayer for who? Prayer for all people, including kings and those in authority. And then, of course, notice the context after. There's one God, one mediator, Jesus Christ. He's the ransom for all people. So Paul, Paul is urging prayer for all people. People, because God does not limit salvation to one kind of people. All types of people can be, in fact, will be saved. Common people and rulers. Jews and Gentiles. White and black and brown. Those in university and those who wander in fields. God wants all types of people to be saved, to be ransomed by Christ. And here are two problems 
two problems if this verse actually means that God's will is that all people who ever lived be saved. If this verse means that all God desires all people that ever lived to be saved first, you have to admit that clearly not all are saved or have come to a knowledge of the truth. Not even remotely. So if God desires something and does not get it, then that means there's something greater than God's will. And therefore, He is not Almighty. Secondly, if God desires all people to be saved, what do we make of God's justice? Where is the, victim, the vindication for the victim? What's he going to do about those who have rejected the truth, who have rejected Christ? We have to ask those further questions. Well, question four, one may ask, does God not care then about those who die in judgment? Does he not care? Well, let's consider the second passage that's often brought up in this uh, debate about election and free will. Ezekiel 18, 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Therefore, he says later in the passage, verses 30 to 32. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourself of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart. And a new spirit. Will you die, O people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Repent and live. God is not pleased in the death of the wicked. But he will judge. He must judge. In fact, God, God is calling people to repent. He's saying, repent, turn. Why? So that they won't be judged. He says, why will you die? Don't you hear? He doesn't take pleasure in judgment. But that won't keep him from being just. He judges because of something higher. His glory. His holiness. His justice. Now we've thought about God's heart. God's will. Let's, let's look at human will. Human responsibility. Which helps us to answer another question. 
question number five. Is God just to require people to respond to him in a way that they may not be able to do? Is God just to require people to respond to him in a way that they may not be able to? It, it's really, our, as we move into our second point, the heart of mankind in our natural will. First, a, a definition. To will is to choose. And to choose is to decide between two or more alternative, two or, two or more options. People often speak uh, of the right of humans to have a free will. The, the, the freedom for people to make their own choices, to live as their hearts desire. I'm, I'm, I'm for that. Here's the problem, though. Our, our will is governed by our heart. And our hearts are not neutral in this. <laughs> Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. Therefore, our will is naturally bent towards evil. That's where our heart wants to go. It just, it, it moves that way. Why does a sinner will or choose what pleases his flesh? Why do they do that? Because we enjoy it. We, we sin because we like it. Our heart is sinful. And our heart presses our will towards sinful pleasure. You see? The problem is our heart. I... I, I absolutely loved the testimony of one of our newest members. They thought, once thought long ago, they once thought that to become a Christian, a person had to go to the hospital and have a surgical change. They had to be made a Christian by a surgical process. Man, they were so close. So close. Because it is a spiritual Surgery. Yeah. Ezekiel 18.31. Remember, God said, get a new heart. How can, how can someone change their own heart? We can't. We can't do that. Several chapters later, though, God says, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my laws. God does a spiritual surgery. He gives a new heart. So that we can choose the right path. Rather than the sinful one. God does that. Then. Then we can please the Lord. Rather than our flesh. Because this God given heart. Now presses us towards 
holiness rather than fleshly desire. Well, coming back to our questions, question number six. Is God just to hold the sinner responsible for failing to do what he may not be able to do? Is God just to hold a sinner responsible for not doing what he or she may not be able to do? Well, we have to think about this word inability. What does it mean to not be able? To say that a sinful person is unable does not mean that if they truly desire to come to Christ, that they lack the power to carry out that desire. No. A sinner's being unable is due to them being unwilling, which springs from an absolutely corrupted heart. Their unwillingness comes from their heart. We must distinguish between natural inability and moral or spiritual inability. For instance, think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the, the, the short man, remember? He climbed up the tree because he could not see Jesus. He could not see over the crowd. The natural inability kept him from seeing. He was short. He couldn't see. Okay, now consider Joseph's brother's inability in contrast. Okay? Joseph, his brothers, says that they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. They hated him and could not speak, could not speak a kind word to him. Now, clearly, this is moral inability. They did not lack the ability to speak a kind word. They could speak. Their hatred kept them from speaking a kind word. You see the difference? So it is when it says in Romans 8, verse 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. The sinner cannot respond rightly to Christ because his wicked heart loves sin and hates Christ. He, he could come to Christ if he wished to do so. That if is the hinge. The if. The fact that a sinner has the natural ability to respond to the gospel, but they suffer the moral and spiritual inability to respond to it. And that shows their responsibility. The fact that they 
can naturally do it, but they morally will not do it, shows that there is responsibility to it. The depravity or the corruptness of the human heart does not lessen mankind's accountability before God. God does not, He will not sacrifice His right to justice simply because mankind has lost the power to obey His word. God must be just. I mean, think about it. You might pity me if suddenly I exploded in anger and then tried to justify it because I inherited this bad temper from my parents. You might think, oh, poor guy. You know, you inherited that from your parents. But you would not excuse my behavior. Just because I inherited a bad temper doesn't take me away from my responsibility. Question number seven. Well, what happened to free will then? Where'd that go? Well, for those who have been around for a little while, we talked about a fourth century bishop named Augustine. I'm going to use his... Uh, prescription here describing human will and why the will is unable to respond to God. First, Adam's free will. Adam's free will. Adam was the only human completely free to do good or to do evil. He was created morally neutral. He, he was innocent, but not holy. Okay, he was innocent, but not holy. In his freedom, Adam chose to sin. Adam chose to sin in his free will. His heart and, and history were forever changed in that choice. Number two... Free will, but not free. Free will, but not free. Now, we all, being in Adam, have a will that's free, but it's no longer morally neutral. We have this will that's free, but it's not morally neutral. Our will is guided by that deceitful, wicked heart. The will is free, but it's really only free in the sense that nothing outside of us forces us to make choices. Does that make sense? Nobody forced you to wear a red shirt today. That was your choice. Unless your mother said, no, you have to wear the red shirt. But I don't think she did. I think that was your choice. Free. And yet, sinful. Not the shirt choice. But just that our hearts are bent. And our will then is bent. We're not free to do 
God's righteousness. Because there's this evil heart that's always pressing us towards evil. A sinner is free, but they're only free to sin. A sinner is free, but they're only free to sin. In God's general grace, you see, the the sinner is, is held from going deeper in sin. And if, if God's general grace were removed, that sinner would fall further, 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 the weight of their sin dragging them down. I mean, for instance, if I hold a, a book in my hand, okay? If I hold a book in my hand, if I release it, what happens? It falls, right? That's where it goes. It's not a Bible. <laughs> it's a hymn book. <laughs> okay. Uh, which direction? It always goes down. Why? Because gravity causes it to drop. Now, if I want this book to be up at this height, I actually have to, I, an outside force, has to come and raise the book to put it there. And so it is with fallen humanity and with the work of Christ. Let's look at third, a redeemed will. A redeemed will. You see, Christ redeems us and sets us free. He comes from outside of us and lifts us up. He takes us out of our sin and the bondage of our will. Our will was bound in sin. Jesus promised in John 8:36, "If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed." Amen. He gives us a new heart. Sanctification or or, or that process of growing in holiness. That is the process of training our will to walk evermore in Christ's path rather than in the path of sin. Yes, we have a choice. And Christ gives us back. Christ gives us back freedom in the will. And then fourthly, there is the perfected will. The perfected will means that in heaven, our will will be truly and totally free, perfectly choosing to obey God. It's our great hope. A true freedom, you see, then. True freedom is not the power to live according to our heart's desires. No. But to live according to our created purpose. Which is to reflect God's character and to fill the earth with the glory of God. So where we are right now, you see that God chooses and we choose. Question A, is God is is understanding election and human will 
Is it really all that important? <laughs> Do we really have to spend time on this? Well, yeah, sure. It's important. Because understanding this relates to God's glory and to our own eternal security. I want to encourage you to dig deep into God's word and to know his character and his ways. But listen, can a person be saved and not understand God's sovereign election? Absolutely. It took me 20 years to wrestle on this myself. I love what the blind man, the one that Jesus healed, I love what he said. Hey, look, one thing I know. I was blind, now I see. That's good enough to be saved. Amen? Understanding election and human will should not be a point of disunity or division among those who are in Christ. God doesn't require full knowledge of who he is and what he's done in order to receive his mercy. You don't have to get a degree before you can be his child. And we should not require it of one another either. As we have been shown mercy, we should show mercy. But it is good to understand this biblical doctrine. Now, in our EBC statement of faith, we try to capture the mystery of the overlap of God's sovereign will with human will. Listen as I read these excerpts. They'll be on the, the, the screen here, too. You have it in your bulletin. We believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, and that it is the immediate duty of all to accept the gospel by a repentant and obedient faith. There is nothing that prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own depravity, his own wicked heart, and the voluntary rejection of the gospel. That is, by their own will and desire, people are rejecting Christ. Nine, no, the next statement. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. Now, regeneration consists in, or it involves, God giving this holy disposition to the mind. What it means is God changes our mind by giving us a new heart. And it is affected by the power of the Holy Spirit in a manner that's beyond our comprehension. This is the amazing mystery of salvation. It's, it's a lot like conception. When that when the baby is created in the womb of the woman, there is mystery in how that happens. And so there is mystery in salvation and the new birth. Well, continuing on, he says, this is in connection with divine truth. That is the word of God and the gospel. So as to secure our 
voluntary obedience to the gospel. Well, there you go. Human will. Number 10, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties. This means by our wills, we must do this. It is brought about in our souls by the Holy Spirit in the work of regeneration. This means we're only able, we're only enabled to do this because the Holy Spirit acts first. Number 11, which we read earlier, we believe that it was the eternal purpose of God, which he graciously planned before the creation of the world to choose some people to be regenerated, that is, born again and saved. Not out of any foreseen merit in them. In other words, God is not looking you know, forward through time to see who would choose him and believe in him and then say, oh, okay, you are the elect. It's not anything we did. But only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And this is perfectly consistent with the free agency of man. That is mankind's will. And it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness. Hopefully as you read this over again, you can see how this tries to summarize this doctrine of election and how free, or not free, but human will fits together. Let's look now at Jesus, who is the centerpiece of God's justice and mercy. Romans 9 ends with a quote from Isaiah 8.14, referring to Christ as the way of righteousness, as a stone over which many will stumble, including the Jews. And that stone is also the rock on which we stand through faith. Are you standing on the rock of salvation? Are you standing on Christ alone? You see, Jesus is the center point of God's justice and mercy. And how you deal with Him is how God will deal with you. We've already established that all humanity is turned away from God in their sin and that He is just to punish all sin and sinners. He must judge in His justice even though He doesn't take pleasure in it. But he loves to show mercy. And he's provided for mercy through Jesus' death and resurrection. The death he died covers our moral and spiritual failure. You see, through faith, we are cleansed from sin and we are given righteousness. We're given Jesus' righteousness. He is the way of righteousness. Are you, are, are, you, are you elected to salvation? Well, has God given you that heart surgery? 
Has he given you that heart surgery that you needed to be able to respond to him? Only God knows that. Only only God and, and you. He has he put his spirit in you to move you towards obedience? You only know, my friend, when you begin to respond to him in faith. This gospel message is God's call. It's his call to you. As God calls in Ezekiel 8.31, repent and live. Why would you die? Believer, no matter what you think about who chose who, we can respond to the mercy and the grace of God in Christ Jesus, who is the rock of our salvation. He, he did for you what you cannot do for yourself. You see, in mercy, he purchased your freedom with his blood. By grace, he extended the offer of salvation to you. Through faith, he credited his perfect righteousness to you. And in love, he has adopted you into his family. By his strength alone, he has pulled you up. And he is pulling you now even out of the swamp of your sin and the flood of your foolishness. And he is setting you on himself, the rock of your salvation. He is the rock of safety. So whether you think you chose him or he chose you, there's nothing you've done, nothing you are, nothing in you at all that gave you a right to anything that he has done for you. And as you think about this amazing grace, just remember that he saves us by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O sovereign Lord, we praise you that in love you have chosen to show mercy to those who have done nothing to deserve it. In your wisdom, you've elected, predestined, called those that you've chosen to save. And though we don't fully understand the mystery of your wisdom, we trust that as you are just, you are also good and loving. And you will do what is right and just and good and loving for the glory of your name. And it is for the glory of your name that we praise you today. Amen. Amen.